our initial thoughts when we realized that force on the ground in relation to body mass was all important for speed was to think that, and this goes way back to our earliest studies, was that there was some limb strength component to it. But as we as we moved along, uh, particularly in Ken Clark's dissertation research, this was the focal point, trying to figure out the mechanism uh, during high, high velocity, steady speed sprinting, the mechanism for forcefulness in relation to mass. And it turns out it's not limb strength at all. Even though we started down that path a little bit initially, we, we realized we need to back up. to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So anyone that's dived into the sprint training research will know the name Peter Weyand. And this has been an episode, probably a year in the making after I, I contacted Peter. He's been a very busy, he is a very busy man. So we managed to line this episode up and I framed it what do we know about speed train that works? What do we know about speed train that we think works? What do we know about speed training that would be a decent guess? And what do we know about speed train that doesn't work? And get Peter's opinion on things that he sees that are a waste of time when it comes to developing speed in our athletes. Then we have a little discussion around misconceptions, which kind of feeds into that last point um, in the discussion. So it's an incredibly interesting episode for anyone who is aiming to get their athletes fast, which is pretty much everyone, especially in team sports. So listen closely to the next hour where Peter gives us an absolute masterclass in speed training and it's linked to research. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Satanta College. Satanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognized qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, Applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching, and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit satantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And this episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. 
The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website, omegawave.com, and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Peter Wayand. Peter Wayand, welcome to the Pacing Performance Podcast. It's been a long time of me stalking you to come on, so thank you very much for making the time. Well, thank you for having me, Rob. It's, it's nice to be here and I appreciate your patience. No, my pleasure. We had a little chat last week, which was which was great, and we dived into lots of things even before we hit record, so really excited to have you on. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, Peter, would you mind just giving us a bit of a brief background to you, please? Sure, sure. So I'm a professor of applied physiology and biomechanics in the Department of Applied Physiology and Wellness at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. And I really, I often describe myself as a jock biologist. So we, we look at a lot of performance-related outcomes um, and the scientific basis of them, uh, primarily mechanically these days. And so it's a privilege and it's fun, and that's what we do. Nice. And a few of our previous podcast guests have come through under you. Is that right? Oh, I think so. So yeah. uh, I think uh, Ken Clark, who is our first PhD student uh, through the program at SMU has been on. And I don't know if you have plans. We have uh, um, Lance Brooks is currently working on issues that would be of high interest to your audience, acceleration, performance, and mechanics. Uh, And my most senior doctoral student right now, Emily McClellan, is working on uh, jumping mechanics, mechanical basis of jumping performance. Uh, And Emily is also interested in, in uh, the mechanical basis of differences in performance between males and females, which is something of a hot topic these days. Interesting. Yeah. I've written a name down, so just give her a heads up. Yeah, so I'm biased, obviously, but I think they'd both be great guests. I think they're doing doing really good stuff. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Now, Lance and I have, have connected on social media, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, Emily, um, incoming with the with the the stalking of the email on email so um, appreciate that i love recommendations peter yeah, yeah. yeah she's love she's compiled some some really nice data sets that i think will will contribute nicely to the field and and i think with your audience they'll the audience would be very appreciative of what she'd have to share yeah no thank you so as i've said a million times in this podcast speed training and the obsession with speed training has has gone berserk over these last couple of years and this is why i want to get you on to to dive into the research side of things when it comes to speed training so what i think what i thought maybe a good way to attack it was what do we know about common method common methods to improve speed to improve speed and athlete speed and the first thing that came to mind was something that's commonly talked about and sometimes polarizing and that's resisted sprint training 
So I'd love to get your take on that with what we actually know about this particular topic. Sure, sure. So uh, for the base of your question, Rob, I'm interested in your perspective, if you, if you can elaborate a little bit on when you say the, the speed training scene has gone berserk. Um, that observation, could you explain what it's based on? And ask because I think it'll help me answer a little bit better. No, of course. I mean, that comes from talking to practitioners with what we publish on Sportsmith in terms of written pieces, um, what go what what resonates with the audience when it comes to podcast guests and podcast topics, what I just see on social media, whether it be Instagram or, or Twitter. And just to give you an insight, when I dive into the analytics of my Twitter and my, my Instagram, I did this not long ago with a view to running a course, and it ended up being an, the isometric course that I set up with Alex Natera about three months ago. And isometrics came second on the list of things that did well on social media, whether it be Instagram or Twitter. But number one was consistently speed training. So whether it was Stu McMillan, whether it was uh, Ken Clark, whether it was Jonas Dodu, them guys, whether it's the podcast themselves or the clips that come out of that podcast to publicize the full episode, are the ones that are always at the top. So I think something like seven of my 10 best performing posts on Instagram were speed related. Three were isometric training related and similar scenario on, on Twitter as well. So I just think, I think with the influence of people like Altis and the, the track side moving into the team sport side, I think that's obviously driven this, what I call obsession with speed training. So I hope that helps. It, it does. It does. And I guess the, what, the short follow-up I had, and I realize it's supposed to be you asking me questions rather than the other way around, um, is it do you, from, from the feedback that you get, are, are the practitioners that are really invested in speed training and want to take advantage of contemporary knowledge, do they feel well-guided or do they feel overwhelmed and unsure what to do because there's so much information in the space? It's a great question. I think there's a lot and there's there's more and more good and not so good that are, that's out there. Like anything, I suppose, when a, when a boom happens in a particular area, there's people that are knowledgeable, have experience, have a track record, but there's others who try to jump on that bandwagon and make a few dollars or make a few pounds. Um, but I think I've spoke to a few people actually who have gone deep in this area and again, not saying it's because of speed, it's just the nature of a particular topic that gets a bit of traction, have become overwhelmed and maybe gone in too deep and forgotten about other core principles or core training methods that they need to upskill on. So that's hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, it does. And so from, from my perspective, as somebody who's a full-time academic, I teach and do research. Some of that, a lot of that research is in the lab. Some of it's in the field. But I do think that it's uh, it's a privilege to do what we do. And one of the most important uh, ways to give back is to make sure that the messages come across clearly. So those of us, and I consider myself very fortunate to have received great training. My, my PhD advisor, Kirk Curden, was very strong. And I got to work with Dick Taylor at Harvard, who was really a unique individual, uniquely creative. And uh, the environment that he created at, at the Concord Field Station at Harvard University uh, for comparative biomechanics, studying different animals, um, drew on a lot of very rich scientific traditions and provide a perspective scientifically that can be brought to bear on human performance that I think uh, can be progressive. So I, so I take very seriously 
the the responsibility of having the translational piece from the academic work we do to the practical things that, that many people in your audience do to have that happen in, in a way that's scientifically sound. So we communicate well. So people are guided rather than misguided. And I have real concerns in the, the, uh, we're in the post-information era, and some people call it the, the misinformation era. There's there's so much out there. I do worry about people being able to sort through good and, and less good information. And some of it's not, you know, some of it's poor and, and getting overwhelmed because not everybody has has had the good fortune that I've had of spending years and years in, in quality environments and, and getting great training to, to have the critical skills to differentiate between what's sound and what is not. And so that's a real concern, you know, when people can flood things out on so, social media. And also there's been a, an erosion of the information environment in academia. There, there's been a proliferation of, of journals that are predatory, uh, journals that are low and no standard. You just pay 2,500 bucks, U.S. bucks, and basically you're in. But the public doesn't know the difference between one that's good and one that's shoddy and one that has no standards at all. So uh, science that's that's wrong and misleading uh, can show up in places that look reputable. And that's a real concern. Uh, and I don't necessarily have a solution, but but the problem is a real concern. Do you think that needs to be emphasized more in universities at the undergraduate level have been critical when it comes to research? Because I remember going through mine, even an MSc, and it was a tiny portion of of the of the course, but it obviously is such a critical one that stays with you throughout your career and and can guide you and, like you say, misguide you in whatever you know the training interventions that you that you prescribe. Yeah, I don't think there's anything more important that we do as, as educators today. And all you have to do is look around if you just see how how much misinformation was was spread about COVID, for example, during the pandemic. You know, and the outcome of that is that that people hear it, they they listen to it, they believe things that are incorrect, and and people die from that. Uh, and and you, it's it's everywhere. So I don't think there's anything that that's more important. And there are a number of academics that are looking at these issues really seriously now. Um, there's a couple at, at the University of Washington here in the U.S. Uh, Carl Bergstrom and, and Jevin West, uh, and they teach an entire course in in being skeptical in the digital era. And it's and they have a book out, and it, it's really. It, it's it couldn't be more important because you know the traditional role of universities for undergraduate education is is that we have uh, we educate to a level where people can process information for life and and do it accurately and hopefully be good citizens and make informed choices but if we fail to provide uh, digital era skills that allow them to differentiate anybody with a four-year degree or even an associate's degree um, between good and bad information. I think that's a massive failure on our part. And I think we're well behind on the in the university systems. Uh, I know a lot of, of universities do incorporate it. I'm not sure we're incorporating it enough into sort of core educational requirements uh, because it's, it couldn't be more important. One thing that did help me personally was a book called Bad Science. That was a core text on, I think, my MSc, I think it was. Really interesting, reasonably informal book, but giving lots and lots of examples of bad science. So I think on that topic, I would definitely recommend that. Yeah, um, did you remember, when it was it published, Rob, and who, who were the authors? Ooh, I read it in 2015. So it's a couple of years old now. I can't remember the authors, I must admit. 
Yeah. Bad science is not new. It's been around for a long time. And we, and none of us do science as perfect. I mean, no, every scientific publication has limitations and flaws. Uh, so people should look at it critically and those skills to do so. They're more important than ever. And then you, you add to that that the the Internet is essentially its, its own beast. It's constantly morphing. You know, it's not like it's a static situation. So uh, the more the, the more dynamic it is, the more important it is that those skills are in place. Yeah. Should we dive into the some we, of the we probably the should. Your that... audience probably wants to hear a little <laughs> bit more about speed and a little bit less about about no, you know, view, views on today's information environment. No, it's, it's super super interesting. So just just I've got a couple uh, that I've written down that we've we've kind of gone through beforehand. Resisted speed training. What what do we know, and what are the outcomes that we're actually looking for in this method of training? Sure. So one of the things just just to 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 frame our discussion about the practical applications of things that that I that I know about scientifically. I, I don't. I'm not engaged in speed training athletes. I, you know, my perspective on this scientific. Of course, I'm very interested in in the transfer to to training practice. So I, I don't have any direct experience with uh, it. I do have some direct experience that, that happened accidentally because of the progression of our research program. I don't have any practical experience with, with resisted training. Uh, and so for me, as, as an academic and as a scientist, uh, I look at it as a question of, of transfer. Right? We know that the, the core thing that makes fast athletes fast is, is force on the ground in relation to how much they weigh. And that, that's true for acceleration. It's too, true for top end speed. So the critical question is, how do you acquire that? And how do you get athletes to implement it in, in their, whether it's in track and field or, or a field sport or potentially a court sport as well? So this, the resisted training has always been a little bit of a curiosity to me because it seems like if you want someone to be really quick, you, you don't want to load them up with heavy weights. In, in one sense, it's going in the wrong direction. But if you step back further, it's a question of how do you transfer what you might do in a weight room where athletes are stronger in relation to mass? And, and clearly what, what the outcome should be for speed is that they're going to be more forceful on the ground in relation to body mass. How do you, how do you get uh, that to transfer? How, if, obviously, we can, people can become stronger in a weight room setting. But in one sense, the question is, how does that transfer to what they do during acceleration or high-end sprinting? So I think the sled work probably has a role to play in that if it's implemented properly. And there are practitioners that I have a lot of respect for. So, you know, in the region here, uh, Michal Cahill uh, uses it. He uses it very effectively. Um, I know that Joseph Coyne reports to me that, that it works for him and he uses it regularly. So when high-end practitioners tell me they use it and it works for them, I believe them. That's one of my first rules in terms of the back and forth with the with the practical community is that we need to listen. And, and the better we listen, the better our research can be, you know, the better focus we are on appropriate questions. And the information that they have is essential. It's, it's critically important evidence to help us refine what we know, how we look at things and, and what our hypothesis should be as we move forward to investigate. So they report that it, that it works and, and, and I believe them, but the, the, there's no question if you go to resistances, particularly higher ones, it's going to slow everything down. So you're going to uh, prolong the, prolong the period of ground contact, et cetera, et cetera. When the outcomes, if you succeed with speed training, uh, your athletes are going to be more forceful on the ground and they're going to spend less time there. And the sleds are going to push them in the opposite direction, right? So there is there is that 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 
recognition that makes me cautious about it. But if, if, if people that are good at what they do tell me they get results, I believe them. So the next one that fits in, per- well, hopefully perfectly after that, is the assisted side, which seems to be getting more traction, no pun intended, because of the technology that has become available, 1080, etc., um, helping people obviously pull down the track or field. What do you think about that? Well, so intuitively, it makes more sense to me for the reasons that I just gave you for why going to loads, particularly heavy loads, um, you know, at first cut doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Um, but as I said, you know, people report that it's effective and I believe them. Uh, but the opposite is true. If you pull somebody along, uh, you are going to force them into fast, faster velocities, more force on the ground, shorter ground contact. And of course, if you pull somebody, what's, what's actually happening, it's like it's not any different mechanically really than, than running downhill. You know, you're, there's an assist there that's going to bias what your muscles do. Uh, every foot ground contact cycle is going to be uh, biased toward eccentric contractions versus what it was in a non-assisted setting. So you're going to get more force out of your muscles. You're going to get more force on the ground because of the pulling and that eccentric bias and muscles that are lengthening develop more force than muscles that are shortening. So once you take the resistance away, uh, you, you're not going to have that artificial boost to force production. Um, but there are consistent reports of, of benefits from it. I, I do think you have to you have to be really careful when you start to put people into hyperspeed kinds of situations about the injury risks. That was my next question. I don't want to dive too much into the detail on each one of these, but what would be your cautious approach? What would be your caution, caution points for people who are thinking of implementing something like yeah, this? Yeah, I mean, again, not having done this with like the fantastic te- technology that 1080 has to offer, you know, I would just, if, if I were a practitioner, I would just go very slowly, incrementally, because if you if you overload with, with assisted training, really bad things can happen in terms of, you know, uh, injuries, et cetera. Well, the next thing on the list, and it kind of links with the first one with the resisted uh, speed training. And I think this is something that I know when we spoke last week, it was a really topic of interest. And this is the, the transfer of traditional gym-based gym acquired strength and how that actually transfers to the track. Can you give us your thoughts on that? Sure. That's not, that's a, that's a great question. It's an obvious one. We get it all the time and it's a really important question. So the answer is as much as I like simple answers, I like to say, here it is. This one's not that simple. It, de- it depends in, um, and there are a lot of, of questions we don't have answers to in this space, but uh, I'll start by saying that, the mechanics of top end speed are it's a, it's a different mechanical task than accelerating, which is somewhat obvious. But people that are really good top end are not necessarily great accelerators, and, and the reverse is, is also true. And that's because of how those mechanics differ. There are different attributes that that go into accelerating quickly versus reaching a high and maintaining a high top end speed. So the weight room transfer seems to be better for very consistently so for acceleration and things like like jumping so the the push the initial push in a sprint whether it's out of a blocks or two-point stance uh, that seems to benefit from classic weight room strength particularly extensor strength of the lower body so squats deadlifts etc but those forces are a lot lower than the forces that are present during high-end sprinting that now if we go to the flip side our initial thoughts when we realized that force on the ground in relation to body mass was all important for speed 
was to think that, and this goes way back to our earliest studies, was that there was some limb strength component to it. But as we as we moved along, uh, particularly in Ken Clark's dissertation research, this was the focal point, trying to figure out the mechanism uh, during high, high velocity, steady speed sprinting, the mechanism for forcefulness in relation to mass. And it turns out it's not limb strength at all. Even though we started down that path a little bit initially, we, we realized we needed to back up and do it in an alternative way. And so if you come back to the, the basic physics of it, force and motion are, are intrinsically linked, right? They're F equals MA, force is defined in terms of motion. Uh, and, and the scientific units we have to describe those things fall right out of that, the, the Newton, et cetera. So it turns out the answer to that question for, for max velocity sprinting is that it's a motion to force mechanism. So it's, it's not an intrinsic force from the limb. It's the motion of the limb as it comes into the ground. And there's an old adage in science that it only takes one data point to refute a hypothesis. And there are well-known athletes that are ridiculously fast, world-class athletes that at the time they were performing at a world-class level, had no limb strength. And the two examples that we use are Allison Felix, uh, who um, her, was reported by her high school coach, one of her high school coaches, that when he put her in a deadlift program when she was a freshman in high school uh, and, and already approaching the U.S. national record for 200 meters, even at that young age, she couldn't deadlift her weight. So she was extremely weak, but you cannot run as fast as she was running without being extremely forceful on the ground. And the other athlete that we use that, that is a, an important data point that, that emphasizes what we found in the lab is true, that you can be extremely forceful on the ground, and that it's all motion to force, and it's almost very little limb strength. And that's Carl Lewis, because Carl Lewis is well known throughout most of his career, uh, and I think all of his, the successful portion of his career never touched a weight. So... Carl, I think by by any any knowledgeable person in track and field is the greatest long jumper ever. The long jump, even more so than sprinting, requires forcefulness on the board, takeoff board in relation to weight. Of course, Carl was super fast. He won lots of sprint gold medals. Uh, and late in his career, there's a, there's a great article in the New York Times about what his strength was when he started to lift weights. And the numbers are incredibly low. So this person who is super forceful on the ground, obviously you can't long jump 28 plus feet with, without being extraordinarily forceful on the ground. And he did it regularly, uh, but he did it without limb strength in, in a traditional weight room sense. So those, those two practical examples drive home what we learned from our high quality lab measurements, which is that it's, it's all in the setup and the delivery and how the limb initially impacts the ground and that early per portion of foot ground contact, that it's, it's a motion to force mechanism and it's managing, setting up and managing, essentially delivering a, a punch to the ground with your lower leg. That's, that's what all the fast people do. I think it's pretty hopefully common that people know that the mechanisms are different between acceleration and top speed. But do you think the influence of strength on top speed is something that's misinterpreted, unknown, people decide to ignore it, whatever that may be? Do you think there's a, a gap there? Yeah, I think there's a gap there in terms of, of what we know. So anecdotally, what comes back to us, particularly for the developmental athletes, is, uh, and this this came out of uh, Allison Felix high school strength coach, Barry Ross, um, who wrote a book on ground secrets to speed, which many people in your audience may be familiar with. So Barry, you know, reading our early work that said it's all about mass uh, force in relation to mass, he thought, okay, and he was a, he was a classic strength training guy. He was a 
part of the muscle beach scene in Southern California back in the seventies. And, uh, he was a, 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 a thrower. So he's a, a shot put guy and had a lot of experience with weight. So he thought, okay, I can make these people really, he thought the intuitive thing to think I can make these people really weight room strong. Uh, and he moved toward a, a deadlift because it incorporates all of the limb extensors. And that's, that's an important concept because if, if you think about, the, the muscles in the leg that are responsible for pushing downward on the ground. It's all, it's all the extensors. It's, it's the calves, it's the quads across the knee, hamstrings and glutes. So Barry thought, okay, I'll, I'll do deadlifts and have that, uh, and just keep the, keep the intensity high and the volume low. So they don't, they don't bulk up. And, and he had a lot of success with that. And it's consistently come back to us with, particularly with the developmental athletes that if they, if they can't lift, uh, on the deadlift, two to two and a half times body weight, they, they don't perform as well. And the place where it shows up is pretty much is toward the acceleration end, right? So, you know, how, how does it help them on top end? It, it just seems to from what they report. But how does that happen? If we know some of the best performers ever can can be extremely forceful with and, and by weight room standards be very weak, um, what is the mechanism by which improving limb extensor strength does seem to consistently help, particularly the developmental athletes with speed. And we don't really know that answer. We don't. So that's one place. The other thing that's mysterious is that the the place that it seems to help, and this is intuitive, that the transfer from a, a, a like a squat type exercise or a deadlift, if you make an athlete a lot stronger, it's, it's intuitive that they would, from a, a somewhat static situation, like a straight up vertical jump or a straight blast out of sprint blocks, that for that one shot, you're closer to what you're doing in the weight room than you are once you get moving over the ground and the force application process becomes more dynamic. So, and it does seem to pay pay more dividends for those types of exercises, what you see blasting out of the blocks, a straight up vertical jump. But the curious thing, and this is what we, what we don't know, is that particularly with the with the elite males, uh, there are a lot of constraints. There, there are simultaneous mechanical requirements you have to satisfy during acceleration, right? You, you don't want to pop too high up in the air. You need you need to have the direction of the push go through your body. Uh, and if you're satisfying all those requirements, it puts a it puts a ceiling on how forceful you can be. So we know that they they can't and don't want to be nearly as forceful in those initial pushes as they are later in the sprint. Uh, but at the same time, so there's reason, there's reasonable reason to believe that the, particularly the elite males operate at, at sub maximal levels of forcefulness. And that's something we're still investigating. But if that's true, then the question becomes, why is it when they get weight room stronger, do they seem to perform better on those tasks? So, and we don't currently have an answer to that question. It's part of what Lance is looking at. Interesting. Did he did he study about arm involvement? He did. So that, that was Lance's Lance, master's thesis, yeah. which published uh, earlier in the year, and he did that. Uh, Ken Clark was his his master's supervisor at Westchester University here in the U.S. in Pennsylvania, and so Lance uh, executed that study. That was for his master's thesis. Earned him his research master's degree, and and it, we published. We got the study published after he was uh, with me doing. He started. Lance started as an undergraduate in our laboratory, uh, so I encouraged him, given his interest, to go to go work with Ken, and, and I think it was a nice home for for him, and I think Ken appreciated having him there, uh, and so he executed that study, uh, and it's a, a non intuitive finding that that you can you know 
do this with your arms from the start forward for a 30 meter all out sprints. And it makes very little difference. Just, just a touch. It was 0.08 seconds on average for tracks, track athletes, as well as uh, field field athletes. Um, and uh, so that was a really nice, uh, non-intuitive scientific result. Uh, I think it may challenge the views of some of the people in the speed world, uh, but that's what we're here for, right? Absolutely. So that was just for the first 30 meters? 30 meters. It was 30 meters. Okay. That, so they opted to do that indoors, and that gets rid of a lot of environmental variables that might have been confounding. So, And 30 meters was the length that they could, could go indoors and control the environment. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the episode with Peter. Hope you're enjoying part one. So part two carries on with a similar theme. What do we know works? What do we think works? What's a good guess? And what definitely does not work when it comes to speed training? So a cracking part two coming up with Peter. Smarterbase from Fusion Sport is the premier human performance optimization platform for elite sports teams and military organizations. Built on infinitely configurable framework, Smarterbase is the most flexible software on the market. Create an adaptable solution to support your unique strategy, process, and culture for a fraction of the cost and time it takes to build your own. Centralize your performance and health data by easily integrating with other tech and data systems using Smarterbase's robust API and custom-built connectors. Improve performance and reduce injury by enabling better communication and decision-making with role-based access, custom workflows, mobile apps, and personalized visual dashboards. And with the Smarterbase success guarantee, you can be confident in your human performance solution and the people who stand behind it. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash Smarterbase to learn how Smarterbase can help you improve athlete performance and service member combat readiness. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool, which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. And now back to the episode with Peter. So just off the back of the previous chat around traditional strength training, it's, it's transference to acceleration and top speed. My next thing on the list, and to get your view or, or get to understand what we know about this, is Mac drills, so A skips, B skips, etc., etc. Because as I said to you the other day when we spoke, and I was in Leeds at the time, I could have gone to any professional rugby club, football club, whatever it may be, in the area. And during a warm-up, because the influence of the, the track guys over the last few years, as I'd said uh, in this chat, 
there will be something in there that looks similar to what we're talking about here. Um, so they've infiltrated everywhere. It seems to be a given that they are introduced um, at whatever stage. So what do we know about the influence of these drills and what are the desired outcomes? So, so in general, at the very high level, I think I think it's a good thing that those those drills have have spread right, and they're they're in use beyond the track and field world. And I, the drill work, they're they're sound in my view. Uh, they may be a little bit less specific than some of the other drills in terms of what what really matters for speed. And I, I can't emphasize enough how important the the foot ground contact event is. So the way we think about it, after years of looking at, at at these issues with with very high quality data is that uh, probably to the extent you can do this and this is really kind of broad brush the mechanics that are most important really start from the ground up so what happens in terms of of foot ankle to make that that initial contact as you go up the leg into the knee into the hip and then torso and up uh, being very fast and getting to the high forces what the extremely fast people do is they have a really fast rising edge on the force. So as they make contact, it's, it's super forceful. They go from zero to a lot of force in almost no time at all. And they, the only way to do that is to contact the ground properly and to be stiff everywhere from foot to head. So nothing can yield. Everything's, everything's got to be really stiff. And so when I say that the mock drills are probably not quite specific enough, I think ideally what you want your drills to do is lock in that 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 foot ground contact mechanic the way you, mechanics the way we know it that it should happen to not only be stiff across the ankles so the, the so that the heel doesn't come crashing down into the ground but also sets up everything up the chain for stiffness and we do know that all of those things are connected so by accident we actually because we get this question so much like well what should I do by accident, we, we sort of stumbled into a series of drills that we do hand off that we're confident uh, are going to serve athletes and, and coaches well. And it's, it's really simple. It's a sequence of, of four drills. And most of them came from a U.S. coach. Uh, and there's, a, there's kind of an interesting background to it. A hurdles coach, one of the top hurdles coaches in the U.S., Gary Winkler. Uh, so I was doing a speaking engagement with Gary at one time. And I, I, this is the first time I ever spoke with him. And through the years when we... Did have done the top speed treadmill tests. Uh, many people may have seen them. We have a, a YouTube channel where you can watch what these tests look like, where the athletes, we speed up the treadmill belt up to the, whatever the speed is, and the athletes have to transition from straddling the belt and holding onto the rails, number of steps, and then they get off the rails to see if they can hit the speed. And we continue with these tests uh, until they fail. So we make sure that we measure their top speed. But through the years, one of the things that we realized was it before they, re when they're getting onto the belt, before they release the rails, that 90% of the time we could tell if they were going to be successful before they let go, just by the, by the noise of their feet hitting the treadmill. And so when I, when I mentioned that to, in, in a lecture, kind of as an aside, and Gary was in the audience, he was speaking either before me or after me that day, he said to me, well, when I, when I had the athletes do these drills to have the foot ground contact part of the, the stride happen properly, he said, I learned, uh, he called it reactive strength. And it's a little bit, you know, coach speak. I don't, we don't necessarily have a strict scientific definition for it, but uh, he said, well, this is what I would do. And he showed me the drills and, and they're stiffness hops, two-legged stiffness hops. And it's really that last extension to the ball of the foot. Uh, 
He said, I learned that this is what I needed to have my sprinters and hurdlers do. And he said, after I, I implemented these drills, after a while, I didn't even have to watch them do the drill. I could tell from the sound whether they were doing it correctly. So we both had kind of this aha moment about foot ground contact mechanics that, that lined up in a common experience. And I, I don't know if the mock drills emphasize that enough. Um, but the progression, and your audience probably would be interested in this, that we give is... Uh, is to introduce, like the mock drills, to go from straight up and down, more or less, to introduce a rotary component and still have the contact happen properly. And then the last drill in the sequence that we recommend is just to hold the PVC pipe over the head and to do do what, what we call prime times in the U.S. You know, so it's, it's rotary, but so that's the most complex one. So and you build up to it by getting that that pop on the ground, you know, with the, the landing just behind the ball, of the foot um, and the the the, the the ankle extension foot into the ground happening with the right timing to to deliver the right to deliver forcefulness in the right position. So the, the sequence is set up to start from just the vertical component to introduce a rotary component, and the last the last drill with the PVC over the over the head forces athletes into a, a neutral a minimally neutral sort of torso and belt buckle position because if they if they rotate forward that that puts them out of whack. They can be slightly rotated slightly back, and that works. But the, the PVC pipe over the head forces them into a good position to execute that cycle. So what you're saying, Peter, is that if we chuck these mat drills into a warm-up, it's not going to automatically kick in and are going to get our athletes I, I think it's a, it's a good, it's a good <laughs> start to, to the motor control and the mechanics that you want for speed. Uh, but I don't think it incorporates quite enough the extension of the foot into the ground to get those mechanics, which are the most critical, to happen properly. So I do think that they're good drills, and I think it's good that they're being used. But not the end game. Certainly not the end game. I don't game. think they encompass everything that you would want an athlete to do. And of course, you know, with, with say, uh, what we would call a soccer athlete, a, a football athlete for all of you over there in the UK, they have to do a lot of things, you know, in terms of acceleration and lateral motion. Uh, so I, for them... You know, I don't know that such a heavy focus on what, what's all important for a sprinter because all you want to do is maximize their acceleration and their top end speed, um, that, that it should be emphasized in, to the same extent because they have to do so many things. Yeah. Cool. Next on the list, and one that I know that you're very interested in, and not to get too controversial, but force velocity profiling. Sure, sure. So, I mean, we can come back a little bit to where we started. And one of our most important responsibilities is to educate science uh, in, in an accurate way that makes it actionable. And what we need to stay away from uh, is information that, that's either esoteric academic, that, that could be, it's either hard to understand or hard to act on, or information that, that can lead people into practices that may not work or may not properly target what they really want to change and and action. So there's, there is particularly in in the information environment that we live in where there's too much of it and a lot of it's not good. uh, There are real, there are real potential issues. And so the scenario we need to avoid is, you know, some horse lob in an SNC setting, you know, looking at rows and rows of spreadsheet numbers, being convinced that there's something important in there without understanding what the numbers mean or where they came from, uh, much less how to action them. So given the proliferation of technology and, and a lot of information that's not high quality, those are, those are real risks. And I, I do, I have in fact had that come back to me like 
what do these numbers mean? What should I do with them? Uh, and so they're, they're, the, the force-velocity relationships, if we go, if we start to dig into the science, and then we'll talk specifically about how it's practiced now, uh, that, that's all, you know, that comes from Isaac Newton. That, that's really solid, right? Uh, and then the classic muscle force-velocity relationships were, were established there in the UK by A.B. Hill. Classic stuff, how muscles work. Uh, so force is what, you know, if we go to Newton's second law, which is F equals MA, force in relation to, to mass is, is what determines the body's change in velocity. So looking at a velocity profile over time and then working with whatever technologies might might be available, 1080 or other video, uh, to get uh, an average. If, if there's a change in, in the body's velocity during the step, to work back to the average horizontal force, which you can do, uh, that that's responsible for that change. That's all good. I think that's informative, and I I can't say this enough. It probably sound like a broken record. Focusing on the body's velocity and change in velocity, all of that occurs during foot ground contact, and it's all a function of force and mass. What happens in the the body's velocity doesn't change in the air, so it's constant. All the action ultimately is is on the ground. Now the setup matters for what's happening on the ground. So if if you're really interested in acceleration backing the, the horizontal force component out of that from the velocities is perfectly fine. Um, it's the analog, but what I get concerned about are, is the, are the next steps in, in some, of, some of how that's been passed on to the applied community. So, and here's a point of misunderstanding. So if you look at a, a, a velocity versus time profile for an all-out sprint, the forces on the ground, if, you, if you're only quantifying the horizontal component, first of all, it's important to realize that's, that's, that is the force that's responsible for the body's horizontal motion, but it's a very small portion of the force. So as you run faster and faster, the force on the ground goes up. But if you only look at the horizontal component, it goes down. And the f- forces on the ground are a good proxy for what the muscle forces as well because the leverage the limb uses across those steps doesn't really change much. The general rule of thumb is that for the force, the force on the ground, any force that you measure two times body weight, the forces, the muscles generate calf muscles, thigh muscles are generally two times greater than the force on the ground. So if you see the force on the ground going up and up and up, then you know the muscle muscle forces are in all likelihood or they are going up and up and up. But in the force velocity profile, those forces are going down, 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 down. So if you don't understand that that's only the horizontal component of the force, and it's a very small part of it, you're missing out on most of the mechanical requirements of running, including running fast, which is putting enough force straight down to hold your body up. So if you if you get stuck in this one-dimensional paradigm where all you consider is, is horizontal force and motion, it's going it's very difficult to have, even on a practical level, the comprehensive understanding of, of what your athletes need to do. You can't ignore the vertical component. It's most of what they have to do. So it really is force and time. And that that chucks out or ignores the, the force velocity profiling, ignores the large majority of the force that the athletes have to generate and have to apply in order to do what they do. And in fact, it's also backwards from the force velocity relationships in muscle. So I think one of the things that's been somewhat unfortunate is that People see those horizontal stance average forces going down as the body's velocity goes up. And that is an analog to what A.V. Hill did with skeletal muscle, which is to measure under controlled conditions, muscle shortening velocities. And in skeletal muscle, 
force goes down as the muscle shortening velocity goes up. But if you look at where muscles operate on a hill-type curve, in other words, uh, to, to do it, to make sure I'm, I'm clear to your audience, mm-hmm. if we think about it as eccentric or lengthening contractions or isometric contractions or concentric contractions, the in an in a accelerated sprint up to top speed, the most concentric contractions are the ones that happen in the beginning. So if we look at muscle shortening velocities, they're highest at the beginning of a sprint. And when you get up to top speed, they're, they're nearly isometric. So, so the muscle shortening velocities are, are, as you run faster and faster and faster, actually get slower and slower and slower. And so one of the concerns is that the practitioners think that, oh, this is just like skeletal muscle and the muscles are contract, contracting faster and faster and faster. And they're not. And in fact, if you, you can do a simple, just simple analytics, simple back of the envelope calculations, if you look at how much force muscle generates, um, and hopefully that was all clear. I'm going to pause there, Rob, just to make yeah, sure no. I'm not going yeah, too fast. Yeah, 100%, 100%. So one of the things we were we were very curious about, so I'm going to come at this same issue, but from a slightly different angle. Uh, early on, when we started to get really fast people to come in and we measured their ground reaction forces, the fastest ones can hit peak forces of, of five times body weight during a sprint step at, at max velocity or near it. And so if you simply, and muscle, uh, the amount of force that muscles generate is a function of their, their area. You know, um, we do it, it's a slight, it's not a strict cross-sectional cut. Um, it's, it's just, it's what we call a physiological cross-sectional area. Um, but to take some of the differences in the muscle architecture into account, but it's, it's not too far removed from what I just described. But so we could calculate how we know how much is there from the literature, from imaging techniques, et cetera, how much what the area of muscle is for the, the calf extensors, right? The triceps, surrey, gastroc and, and uh, soleus. And we know at the quads, et cetera. So if we looked at the leverage of the limb, how hard they were hitting and how much force the muscles had to generate so that the, the joints would, would be able to, to counterbalance those forces on the ground. They're really big. They're a lot bigger than than what the muscles studies tell us they should be able to generate. So we refer to it as the muscle force mystery. For a long time, we were stuck on how is it that these people, you know, these, these, these really fast athletes are, deliver, are generating more muscle force than the classic muscle properties tell us is possible. And it, it turned out that, uh, that what they do in the early part, the impact deceleration phase, it's all important when they contact the ground we realized, particularly across the calf, that that's all, those are lengthening contractions. And so if we worked from the isometric force constant, that number was, was too low because when muscle is actively lengthening, it can generate up to 1.8 times more force than it can isometrically. And as we move forward with this, and this is, this is again the work that Ken Clark did for his dissertation, we realized, oh, all the differentiation is in the early part of contact. That's when the big forces happen. So they get to forces of five times body weight in part by having those contractions be lengthening contractions. And so I'm coming a long way around back to your original question (laughs) um, to illustrate, oh, the early portion of contact when you're at max velocity, there's no shortening velocity at all. In fact, it's lengthening, right? So if you do the whole step, it's really something close to isometric. 
But of course, if you back all the way up to the start and you have a really compressed limb, that you're in that crouch position that you extend the entire time for the push-off from a standing start, for example, whether it's in blocks or a two-point start. The reason that you can, that you flex the limb and get in that position is so you can extend throughout. And if you're extending throughout, then those, are, those aren't lengthening contractions, they're shortening contractions. And, and even though they happen over a longer period of time, there is a positive shortening velocity. So if you go back to classic muscle, your shortening velocities are a lot higher at the beginning of the sprint than they are at the end. But in the force velocity profiling, it's the opposite way. So it can be, and those things are, they're, they're not simply uh, geeky academic questions. They have a lot of practical implications for how you should train uh, athletes for, for, for acceleration or top end speed. Is there any particular questions that come to you from practitioners around the false velocity profiling that you haven't covered there? Um, I, I think that, that there's a lot of confusion about the profiling and, and I'm not deep in these weeds. Um, but what does the profile mean and et cetera, et cetera. And if we back up a little bit to top end speed, mechanics and acceleration mechanics being distinct in a lot of ways. Uh, people are good at one or not necessarily good at the other and vice versa. Some of those those profiles are, are, are likely intrinsic. And so with, with Emily McClellan's dissertation work, comparing men and women, body size makes a big difference. So there, there are intrinsic differences based on just how big you are. So for example, that are going to affect what you would get for a force velocity profile as, as currently practiced. So if you look at uh, the on average, the heights and weights of the fa- of the best performers in sprints for an indoor dash, 60 meters versus 100 versus 200 versus 400, those body types change. Um, so the, the squatty bodies tend to be better at the indoor dash. And the best sprinters at 400 meters tend to be a lot taller, and it's very even in between. And that comes back to basic things we know about muscle force generation. So as I, as I mentioned earlier, it's a function of... of area, which is, which is two dimensions. So as, as people get bigger and bigger and bigger, if you keep them everything identical, you just make them bigger, they're intrinsically weaker as they get larger because the two-dimensional areas that determine muscle force uh, increase with size as a square function and the three-dimensional mass, which is a function of volume, increases as a cubic function. So as you get bigger, you increase in mass much more rapidly than you increase any part of your area, whether it's a straight cut through your bicep or your skull. You know, the area properties increase as a function of length squared. So, uh, and it has very practical repercussions. So, for example, in weightlifting competitions, they do they do the weight lifted. Um, they, can, they put people in weight categories. So if you look at the weight that the small people lift for whatever the standardized lifts are in the competition – how much weight the people in the small, smaller weight categories lift in relation to how much they weigh, they're much stronger. And that's just a simple, that's just a simple area to mass function, right? And, and in fact, it comes out almost dead on what you would predict, which is if area increases as a square function as you make a body bigger uh, and mass increases as a cubic function, then that relationship, if you do a, a body mass versus strength, weightlifting strength, it should be it should be a two-thirds function and it's dead on. So there's papers back to the 1950s that took advantage of weightlifting data to, 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 um, to quantify these things. So what you have there in theory from skeletal muscle properties, which again were put in place 
uh, in the UK by A.V. Hill back originally back around 1920, but he continued with that work for several decades. Um, what you would predict in theory is exactly what you measure in competition, right, in weightlifting. And that's relevant for sprinting it, because it explains why the squatty bodies are good at accelerating. And when you have a sprint like the 400 meters, which is mostly at constant near top end speed, it's, it's, it's the tall folks. And the reason I went through all of that in response to a question of force velocity profiling, if you're small, you're going to be much on those profiles, you're going to be a lot more forceful at the beginning and your force is going to drop off faster. And if you're really tall, you're going to have a lower force at the beginning on average. Of course, there's going to be individual variability with both those things. But some of what would come out as a force velocity pro- profile to a coach sitting there who might not, who doesn't probably know, understandably, anything about these size relationships, they'll look at it and see, oh, that's an individual difference in profile without realizing, oh, wait, men are going to have an intrinsically different baseline than women, tall people than short people. And so those those are related concerns because, again, they're going to carry over to what you prescribe for training. And it's important that you you understand um, that there are going to be these intrinsic differences that probably to some extent are not movable, right? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will add one more point, which is that in the context of, well, I think for human performance generally, I think there's some places we've done a really good job with the science, but other places like these size relationships, I think everybody in the sprint world understands mass specific force force in relation to mass is all important i don't i don't think that that's questioned at all at this point at least i'm not aware of anybody who would dispute that but the size basis of it and we haven't spent a lot of time on this because it's not easy to pick apart emily is doing some of this now um but i don't think the size basis of it because of these what we call scaling relationships that that if you're smaller you're going to be intrinsically more forceful i don't think those size bases um, those the size relationships are well appreciated. And I think it's something we we need to do a better job getting out there in the field. Cool. Just pretty linked to this is the is the focus on power. And he got a bit of an opinion here that we talked about at length uh, last week. You just want to tell the audience a little bit about power. This? Power is a tricky variable. So if we go really big picture on sort of the science of the, if you go to the physics, there's, there's Newton's laws. Everybody accepts those. They're, they're incredibly powerful. Um, but there's, there are different traditions, work, energy, and power, which are, are not entirely unrelated, but we, you know, for the most part, it's fair to describe them as different frameworks or paradigms or different, different definitions, um, for running and, and, uh, performance included the, the history of work, energy, and power measurements, uh, is there have been some really important things that have come out of that, starting with uh, actually before Giovanni Cavagna, but Giovanni, who was really kind of the original modern force plate guy who's at the University of Milan. Uh, and Giovanni did some a lot of foundational work. But part, one of his foundational contributions was to show that the work energy power, as, as he laid it out and is still practiced in many quarters, um, greatly overestimates what the the work energy and power the muscle that muscles actually do right so and, and as we move forward scientifically there's power is work is really complicated because this, measuring it during running is super complicated because there's dozens of muscle tendon units that are operating we can't mechanically measure what all of what they all do etc so measuring something as simple as mechanical work which by by definition is force through a distance, right, uh, that's aligned with the force, is super complicated for running. So depending on what assumptions you make, 
even for jogging, you can get numbers that vary by as much as tenfold. So what's the real work? None of us really know, uh, right? So it's really so those metrics are really difficult to relate to uh, running or running performance because the quantification challenges are so large because the body is so mechanically complicated. Now, if we reduce this to something really simple. And we just say, okay, we'll just focus on not all of the motion of every joint, every muscle, every everything that's going on simultaneously, which is a ridiculous amount. We'll just focus on the center mass. Newton's laws tell us precisely for force on the ground, force acting on the body's center mass, exactly what the motion is going to be. And so for, for steady speed level ground conditions, the work that's being done, once you're up to speed, the work that's being done is very close to zero. So there, there is no requirement for work. And this comes back to what we talked about in terms of muscle shortening velocities a few minutes ago, that they, an isometric contraction obviously does no work. If work is forced through a distance, and for isometric, you have no distance, just a lot of force, right? You're not doing any work. So the whole body requirement for the center mass during very fast sprinting, which is almost zero work, very neglecting what you push for wind, which is even for the really fast males, it's not very much. But... There's a nice, uh, there are parallel relationships between how the muscles behave and what those requirements are. So when you're sprinting at max speed, there's, there's almost no requirement to do work. Therefore, power is work divided by time. There's no requirement or little, little to no requirement for power. Uh, and so what the muscles do, but you have a huge requirement for force. So what the muscles do is they operate in a way that delivers a lot of force and no power, which is isometrically, right? So it all parallels. And if you go back to the acceleration part of a, of a sprint, there, there is a requirement. If you're going to speed the body up, you have to increase the body's energy state. The, the muscles are responsible for doing that. They have to do shortening concentric contractions to perform work in order to introduce the, the energy to accelerate the body. And that happens in a certain period of time. So there is a power requirement for acceleration. Uh, but as a general rule, power is not a great variable for running. We can't measure it very well, and it is not the primary requirement. So I do have real concerns that if you add, if you go from force and velocity, which is sound, if you understand those measurements, to power, power is just not very informative. You get this U-shaped relationship in a relation to velocity. Power is not the requirement in the first place. Um, there's a there's an assumption that that power is somehow maximized during sprinting, which is probably not valid because sprinting is not a contest in, in maximizing power. However you measure it, it's, it's, you know, you want to maximize speed, right? So uh, there's a host. So one of the concerns with power is that if you're sitting there looking at a spreadsheet and you've got a bunch, bunch of power numbers, well, will, let me back up and say this on a practical level, the way that it's quantified with a video or a 1080 if you successfully train your athletes and they accelerate faster, mathematically, the way power is done in that relationship, power has to go up. It's simply mathematical. So if you look at it and you've been convinced that power is all important, which, which, which it is not, in my view, um, you're going to get positive reinforcement because you, you, if you're good at training, you know what to do. Your athletes get faster. Oh, look, their power numbers went up. But in my opinion, well, I think it's true, but my opinion or not, I think this is a fair statement. Power takes... The, the performance coaches and, and, and other coaches and athletes further away from what they need to pay attention to um, than the, the, the core things that they should be paying attention to, which is force and mass and how force application happens. 
power is a step away from that. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a mathematical construct the way it's done in FVP. And it has a lot of power to, to mislead and also poorly serve people because it's not an appropriate scientific focal point. It's, it, it's like paying attention, it's paying attention. There's a risk of paying attention to the wrong thing. So let me give another example of, of what I mean by that. So if we were to quantify power throughout a, a, an entire hundred meter sprint, right? When athletes get to, to the latter parts, if, whether we include the, the slight bit of wind resistance that they have to overcome or not, if we simplest, if we neglect it, power would actually go negative in the last parts of sprint based on the way it's quantified, right? So let's suppose you're, you're coaching a 100-meter athlete. They're having difficulty closing. So you've got this power curve, and you look at the power versus time, and then late in the 100 meters, their power is actually negative. So one question is, how do you interpret a negative power? What does that mean? And then it's, but if you're convinced that power is important and that's what you should pay attention to, you, you then go move on and say, well, I want to train my athlete to have less negative power at the end of a hundred meter sprint. How do I do that? And you can see you're, you're starting to run down dead ends, right? There's just nowhere to go with that. That's going to be constructive. So I, I throw that out as an example of, um, how power can be the wrong thing to focus on and take you down dead and unproductive trails as a coach, because it just, you know, negative power doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. Okay. And trying to train for less negative power makes even less sense. Uh, <laughs> and as I said, for acceleration, I think, I think there probably has been some buy-in because that comes, it's an easy metric to quantify out of a 1080, the way, the way it's, um, the way the FB, FVP methods quantify it. But, you know, there's an old adage that just because you can measure something doesn't mean you should. Um, and, and here, I, I, I don't, I, I just, I think that adage applies. And I could expand on it. I mean, we could talk about limitations of power, say, for, for vertical jumping, right? Where, you know, it's, it's probably a little bit cleaner. If you, you can measure the energy of a, of a vertical jump, if you take something really simple, uh, like a counter movement jump, you know, you can go mass, gravity, height, you can get the, the energy that's associated with that jump. And the power, of course, would be the energy divided by the time. So, but even for something as simple as a counter movement jump, what's the right time? Do we do just the uptime? Do we do the down plus the uptime? And it becomes very fuzzy and nebulous what the right time component is for quantifying that power. And even for something as, 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 uh, simple as a vertical jump. If you ask me, what's the right, I, I don't really have a good answer to that question. I can't, here's where, you, here's where you start the time. Obviously, you're going to end that time at the end of takeoff, right? There's no power after that um, in terms of what the musculoskeletal system is delivering for the center to lift the center mass. But, you know, do you, uh, well, part of what's going on with the skeletal muscles comes back to something that I talked about earlier for initial contact, and the eccentric contractions, undoubtedly part of getting a lot of lift and, and, and therefore a higher energy metric from that jump is the counter movement portion of it where it's entirely eccentric. So your, your work there and your power there, again, is negative. So you got what's the time and how, how do all these pieces fit together? Um, that's another example of how power can take you into the weeds because it's so difficult to, to quantify. Cool. So good. Right, we've got 13 minutes left because I know we've got, we had 90 minutes in the diary and I'm going to use them as constructively as possible by asking you 
the most common questions that practitioners who may or may have covered this already. So please tell me if if we've if we've ticked all these off. Most common questions that practitioners come to you with. And I'm really interested to see this because it'll it almost guides me in the kind of content that needs to be delivered because there's so much misunderstanding. So I'll yeah. put that to you. So I mean, all the questions that we get are, uh, you know, how do I get faster? You know, so yep, simple. We, we've been taking <laughs> speed measurements for a long time and and focus, you know, dedicated focus on what makes fast people fast. Uh, but of course, it's very natural for the athletes to say, well, okay, here's my numbers. What do I do to get faster? So we backed into the the drills that we discussed earlier. It wasn't our intention, but we did find out through the years, and I and I was very skeptical initially that we could do something acutely in terms of interventions that would make anybody faster. And that was not our intention when we started. We weren't trying to figure out, hey, uh, I mean, we wanted that, certainly that to be an outcome that was available to the performance community. But our initial focus was not on, hey, what are the best ways to train to make people faster? We just felt first felt like we have to understand it before, before any of those things can happen. And when we started, there really was very little in terms and, and arguably no, I think it'd be fair to say no comprehensive understanding of, of the, of what makes fast people fast and what, what limits how, how fast they can go. So, but we did find out fairly early on and I'll, I'll tell a quick anecdote. I, I voiced that opinion that people were just, it was just kind of intrinsic. They do what they do. They kind of run however's best for them to run. And one of the first times I met with Dr. Ralph Mann, who, who's been a biomechanist for USA track and field for a long time. And Ralph's a quite accomplished uh, at sprint at hurdle athlete himself. He won a silver medal in the Olympics. And so the first time I said that in a USA track and field meeting, you know, Ralph shouted at me, <laughs> <laughs> not out of anger, just like, oh, that was because he devoted so much time to developing a really excellent kinematic model for motion for these athletes. And he knew from what he'd do. And I was kind of, kind of coming at it. Uh, at that time, I was still at the in the bio department at Harvard and at the field station where we looked at these mechanics as just these are things that animals naturally do. And um, and they kind of uh, not fully self-optimize, but they find solutions that, that work for them. And we assumed that that was true for human runners. Ralph knew better. He was way ahead of me at that time. And I still feel a little bit sheepish looking back at it because we learned very quickly as we started to look at uh, the things these sprinters could do that uh, we could intervene. And just give them basics of, you know, all, you know, be stiffer at the ankle, uh, set it up this way a little bit better. And even with some of the elites, you know, just the just those cues, they get faster immediately. And in fact, we did we did uh, we had an opportunity to put ourselves really to the test. We did a uh, there's a show in the U.S. that goes out nationally on public TV called called Nova. It's a scientific show and um, they they do different topics. But they wanted to do a show on on uh, making things faster. So they, they had a whole series of making things, make things colder, make things faster. So they asked to come and do a segment on speed. So we said, sure, we, we were happy to do it. And they have a, a very adventurous host named David Pogue. Uh, adventurous. Yeah, no, he I mean, if you look at the things that he's done through the years, I mean, he's had himself shipped in packages and uh one of the things that he said to me uh, when we were doing the shoot was he, he referred to himself as camera meat. So that, that gives you a sense of the mindset. <laughs> so we were charged by the, by the producers of the segment to make David faster. And he's a fairly fit guy at the time. He was probably, I don't know, late forties, maybe 50, um, but uh, you know, trim uh, and healthy, but not, not really, not a specific athletic background. 
So we put him up on the treadmill and then you, you got to give him cues and make him go faster. <laughs> so, and the cameras are rolling. So we're on the spot. And then we, we also went to the track. He did a naive hundred meter run. Then we went to the lab, watched him run, gave him cues, implemented the cues. And then we went back to the track and did another hundred meter run. Of course, we were on the hook because if, if, if he didn't run faster, we were going to look really bad. And if he ran slower, we were going to look really, really bad. <laughs> um, so there, there is a clip out there. I think it's still out there on, on the internet of David, if you do make stuff faster. So I think there's a five minute clip that PBS has left up online. Uh, if you, he, David is really smart. So I gave him three cues to focus on. It was really kind of get more upright and essentially another one to, to give it to the more upright, he was kind of hunched over. So I said, you need to straighten up and be more upright and then, you know, get, get your, get your knee around sooner. So you get it high and then really concentrate. And I gave him those cues and he repeated back them back to me perfectly. He got up on the treadmill and immediately at the same speed, he put down a hundred pounds more force with each step. And so, and we've seen that with a little less dramatic effect with the speed athletes, because obviously they're highly accustomed to doing what they do, but we do see those interventions and, and Ralph reports the same thing. If you get a chance to ever get a chance to watch what he does, he travels around the U S to, to, to do field interventions where these sprinter, where the top sprinters are. Uh, and he, you know, he can do his interventions and they get faster. And I did not believe it until the first time I saw him do it was 2010. He actually came to SMU with some of the athletes. Uh, we do have a lot of really quality speed athletes in Texas. And I went, wow, he really can do this. Mm-hmm. And this is before, you know, the, the episode with David Pogue happened about three or four years after that. Um, but for sprinting, because in some ways, and this is the way Ralph describes, it's not really a natural thing to do, you know, to try to maximize top end speed. It is very technical. Uh, and, and arguably and this is the way Ralph describes it, not a natural thing to do, but we did learn, you know, pretty quickly as we had these quality athletes come in that, uh, there's, there is a, a blueprint for speed in terms of the mechanics and you can pick up on, on deficiencies, even in these elites and you can fix them immediately and they go faster. It's really an amazing thing. Awesome. Right. I'm going to, we've got five minutes to go before the, the, the 90 second calendar invite disappears. But um, Peter, that's superb. Where can people get to know more about your work, the work coming up with your, you and students and whatnot, social media? Where's the best places for people to find you and your so, work? So we have a, a Locomotor Lab SMU YouTube account. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to pop things up there. Lance's arms work is there. Uh, some work we did last year leading into the Olympics with the New York Times on distance versus mid-distance versus sprinting. They did a superb job. That crew with the Times, Joe Ward's crew, is really fantastic. Uh, and they did a nice spread uh, for the, the uh, members of the audience that may have access. Some might be stuck by the paywall. Um, so we've got some of the clips from that up on our YouTube site. I have a Twitter account, so I'm, I'm, I'm in and out. When we have messages and new things, I tend to be a little more active on it. Um, those are good places. And we've, we've flirted with the idea of, of taking topics um, and doing short clips and popping them up um, to weigh in on what's going on in the community. So uh, what's your thought on that, Rob? Would that be something, you know, maybe like quarterly? Um, yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and we would need Little to solicit ideas yeah. Yeah, about what would be, because that would be also in Lance's wheelhouse, Lance Brooks mm. and, and Emily McClellan. They would, those are things that they're, they're, they both come out of strength and conditioning backgrounds and they're both competitive athletes. So, so hopefully the, 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 uh, 
lab timelines and calendar would permit us to do that. It's something we flirted with doing that we'd like to do, but have not done done yet. But but the other venues are Twitter and, and uh, YouTube are, are available right now. Amazing. Peter, I'm going to let you go. Thank you very much for bearing with me while I stalked you for the last year to come on the podcast. Delighted, <laughs> delighted we managed to finally line it up and I really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, it's great. It's great. So I appreciate all you do for the field, Rob, and, and no, how the you. quality of your podcast. And I'm happy to be here and contribute. It, it does a service to me. So I talked at the beginning about um, we like to reach the audience with good information. We make it as good as we can. And uh, so, so this is a really nice opportunity for me to do that. And I wouldn't have that without you. So thank you. No, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. Have a good day. Thanks for tuning in to episode 403 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Firstly, it was an absolute pleasure to get Peter onto this episode. A year in the making from me stalking him back in 2021. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, iMeasureU, Kitman Labs and Samson Equipment for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time.